0: Television commercials have um, done a real good job convincing us that when E.F. Hutton talks about money management, everybody listens. It might be wiser, however, to listen to what Jesus of Nazareth has to say about the handling of our financial resources. And He really did have a lot to say about it. It's kind of sad, but true, I think, that that some of us are more like the rich man in this text than we care to admit. For there are very few of us whose lives have not been dominated in some way or another in some time by the pervading materialism of our time. The desire to get a bigger house, a nicer car, um, wider screen television, designer clothes, and the beat goes on. For modern advertising is so designed to increase our need to acquire. I want it, says the car buyer, with a kind of a desperation in his voice. I really want it. And one's willingness to buy that more expensive perfume is justified because, after all, I am worth it. And who can resist the seductive allure of I bought my sombrero and re de Janeiro, so worthy, so welcome, MasterCard International. And because this text hits us where we live, one cannot really come to speak to the matter of our possessions without the risk of some of you turning me off. I hear those um, uh, hearing aids just clicking off all over this auditorium and turning me, tuning me out. That is so because we already feel guilty about our affluence. We know that most of the world does not live in the luxury you and I enjoy, and that bothers us. And yet, like the rich young ruler, we're not willing, ready and willing to give up what we have. And I hear what some of you may be thinking or saying, Boy, that's great. I dragged myself out of bed this morning after a night in Durant, Saturday night in Durant, to make it all the way to church. And what I don't need is a moralistic tirade on giving. And there's another problem also. It may be that some of us are not as wealthy as we may appear. Somebody was asked one time what he would do if he owned all the money in the world. He said, I would apply it to my debts as far as it would go. (laughs) The National Foundation of Consumer Credit, Credit reports that Six out of every 100 American families are in serious financial trouble today. And that the average American family lives just three weeks away from bankruptcy. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, after surveying 11,000 families in 91 cities, have said that the average American family spends $400 a year more than it makes and that 70% of all of our worries today are financial. No wonder this text touches a tender spot. But I want you to know that this is more than just a text having to do with financial management. This is the scenario of a tragedy. And there's some fi- there are some timeless principles in this passage that, that are vital to your life and to mine. And I want us to see them. Here is a man who spent his life in the accumulation of goods. And now he's come to die. Where, what will happen to the goods? Will they be put on the auction block? Will they be left for ungrateful relatives to fight over? What is the point of this man's life anyway? And why is this a tragedy? And why did Jesus call him a fool? What is there that's so tragic about the actions of this man of our text? Well, the tragedy of his life is not in his wealth, but in the fact that he was committed to nothing else. There is absolutely nothing in his life to which he is committed except making a living. There is nothing that he has given his life to other than that. And now he has everything his need, everything he needs. And what next? The tragedy of his life is not in the abundance of his possessions, not at all, but in the poverty of his values. And I know that you and I do not like to be told this by any preacher, not by any preacher, but we must be reminded again and again that it is a sin to make the acquiring of money and its derivatives the only consuming passion of our life. I challenge you this morning to make a list of all the things you're committed to, except making a living. You might say, well, I'm committed to my family. I'm committed to my church, my Sunday school class. I have a, a civic organization that has my time and energy. Well, that's a good place to start. I ask you a second question. What are you doing for your family besides just providing for them? Pat Clarkson was right when she said, the work you do can wait while you show your child a rainbow, but that rainbow will not wait while you do your work. I ask you this question. To what are you giving yourself today? I mean, not your financial resources, but what are you giving yourself to besides making a living? Mammon is an insatiable God that has a passion that is never satisfied. Mammon can never provide a loving heart and a happy family. Mammon cannot bring tranquility of heart, only external trappings. Be sure you know where your values are placed. Be sure you're committed to something besides making a living. That's the tragedy of this man's life. The tragedy of this man's life is that he failed to hallow life. Now, I want, to under, I want to define what I mean by the word hallow. I mean to revere, to deem as sacred, and, and to see and recognize as, as holy. He failed to hallow life. That's what Jesus meant when He said, that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. In other words, Jesus was saying, hey, life is more sacred than this and the things that God has placed in your hand are more sacred than to put in some barn somewhere and hoard away. Life is more sacred than that. There's a little parable in John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, tucked away in that, that classic uh, novel. There's a little land turtle. We call them terrapins out in West Texas. He slowly makes his way across dry grass until he gets to a hill. It's a highway embankment. And he laboriously climbs up that highway embankment until he gets to a wall. It's the four-inch parapet of the highway. Painfully, he struggles until he gets up over that obstacle that's immediately before him and starts out slowly across to the other side on that uh, flat surface of the concrete highway. A woman about 40 coming down the road in her car sees the terrapin and swerves to miss it. Right behind her is a young man in a light truck. He sees the turtle and he swerves to hit it. And he sends the turtle spinning across the highway and he lands on the other side on his back, on its back. And his legs are frantically churning until he finally is able to right himself. And slowly he makes his way down the other embankment. And those two drivers illustrate at least to some degree... The two philosophies present this morning regarding life, there are some who see life as sacred and they hallow it and they're committed to live and to help live. They recognize that everything God has made is sacred and holy and that living things are sacred and that life created in the image of God is sacred and they're committed to live and to help live. And there are others who, like this man in our text, are willing to sacrifice almost anything to their pleasures. The fertility of a field, the majesty of a forest, the survival of a certain animal species, the the happiness and the fulfillment of another person created in the image of God. And at present, there are two philosophies. There are those who see life and hallow it, and there are those who see life and take it for granted at best. They look at it indifferently. Albert Schweitzer perhaps was the most intelligent man who's ever lived. He had four earned PhDs. He was a scientist, a musician, an authority on Bach, and a marvelous organist. He was a philosopher and a, and a, and a, and a physician. He went to Africa and in the bush. He started a little clinic. He gave up that lucrative practice in his homeland and went to Africa, started a little practice in the bush, and he hallowed life. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't kill anything, not even a gnat, literally. And he said that if we got right in our attitude toward what we deem the lower forms of life, then it would make wars between human beings impossible. And you say, well, that won't work. That's going to the extreme. That man was a pacifist and that will just not work. That's going too far. Be that as it may. The point is that life is hallow and sacred and everything God has made is precious and holy. The point is that the greed of modern man is destroying life on this planet. The point is that god made life so sacred that if we shove it aside in our pursuit of things to the point where we make things synonymous with life then it would then we have committed a blasphemy that is worse than the blasphemy of the street the point is jesus is making is this that if a man fails to hallow life he's better off dead and we talk about standards of living, and we're not talking about standards are living. And we talk about how much a man is worth when all we're talking about is how much he has. What a tragedy. The tragedy of this man's life was that he failed to recognize or experience the generosity of giving. That is, taking what he had and bringing happiness through giving it away. David Pearson was a perfect illustration of that principle. By the time he was 91, he gave away his fortune. And he passed his sunset years in a sanatorium he established. He, 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 he built himself. He was a poor boy working his way through college in a little attic room, cooking his own frugal meals. He was a school teacher. He studied medicine. He engaged in farming. He got into lumber business. His wife, he said, wanted to make money so she could give it away. His assets skyrocketed. He became wealthy. He wanted to see that everybody had a college education, so he invested in the endowments of 47 universities in 23 states. He said, I am the happiest rich man who has ever lived. Let the wealthy have his automobile and his steam yacht. I have found the exquisite joy of giving, and I intend to die penniless, and he did. When he was 91 years old and died, he had given away $6 million. And that will never happen to you or me. I'll never even see that much. It might be just as simple as this to give away your life to someone who needs your time, somebody bitter, depressed, and discouraged. It may mean that you must, that, that someone that you need to reach out to needs to hear the gospel of God. Give your life away. I say that on this first day of a semester at college and remind us that Sunday morning, four young people stood at this altar or Sunday, Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Three of them were college students. One of them was a career person already emb- embarking on her career. And they stood here to say in this altar before this congregation, we feel God calling us into a ministry of Christian vocation, and we commit ourselves to that call. I ask, what if God leads you to some third world where it's just a sacrifice to survive? We're ready to go, they said. And what if it means that you have to take hands off your life so that you no longer have the privilege of choosing where you go to college or who you date or marry? They said, we're willing to do it. We want to do it. What they were saying is this. We want to find the joy of giving our life away. And 25 years from now, on the 14th day of August, I want them to come back into this congregation and I want want them to share with us the delirium, the happiness of giving their lives away. What a tragedy when we don't. The tragedy of this man's life, I told Rita, she said, while I sing Sunday, I said, I've got five points. Just pick a song, it'll it'll relate to one point at least. Point four and I'm hurrying. We'll be out on time. The tragedy of this man's life is that he lived for no other person but himself. There is a question that haunts me in this text. It has always haunted me. The, the, the word that haunts me in this text is not when God said, You fool. The, the question that haunts me from this passage is this question What will happen to these things? Where were, he, where were his friends? There were none. Where was his family? There was no family. It wasn't always like that, it never is. But hoarding takes up time and it takes up space. I don't have time for friends. I'm hoarding up things. I don't have space. Space, family and friends get crowded out in my hoarding things. I don't have time for this, for you. I I, I need that time for my crops. And, and, And the space where you're standing, I need for my barns. I heard Ken McFarlane tell one time about a, a guy who grew up on the plains of, of, of southern Kansas, southwest Kansas. And, and in this subculture that he grew up in, this religious group of people that he grew up with, he, it was a part of their culture that, that the way they inducted young people into the society set was to invite them to sit at the big table when the, all the folks got together to eat. And he said about, about once every quarter, they'd travel for several miles and all the people that were a part of this religious group, they'd all get together and they had this big table where all the adults sat. And, 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 and when you finished, when you passed your 13th birthday, you got to come and sit at the big table. That was your coming out, you see. It was the only social activity of the, of the year. And this boy uh, passed his thir- uh, 13th birthday. And I want you to listen to what happened. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's hilarious. It says, it was my time. I had just had my 13th birthday. My mother coached me and told me how to sit and act. By the way, the family was judged by how the kids acted. You know? when, they were, when they were put at the table on their 13th birthday, the, the family was judged by the kids. See, You, you get the picture now. He says, my my mother told me how to sit and act, how to do all those things. I worked at it. He said, I didn't want to embarrass my parents. That night I was very nervous. After a while, everything seemed to be going all right. You can just see him at this big table and everybody's watching him. He said, I was doing okay. People began to smile and nod at my parents and, and, and nodded their heads, and my folks were proud and I was feeling good. He said, Then I came to the dessert. It was some plums floating around in juice. He said, I really didn't know what to do, but I took a spoon, and that seemed all right. Everybody nodded. Yeah, that's right. He said, I was eating that dessert and realized after a while I had something in my mouth that wasn't a plum. He said, I, I rolled it around on the end of my tongue, and I knew it wasn't a plum because it had hair. Now, can you get that picture out? And somebody, somebody said to him, he said, Well, what did you do? He said, I swallowed the silly thing for my folks' sake. Now, hear me. There's sometimes, there's sometimes, there's some things we have to swallow for the folks' sake. No man can live to himself, and no man dies alone. My son came home and said to me, Today I saw a boy fall out of a tree. And he couldn't get up from where he lay, and so an ambulance came and took him away. I said to my son, You saw him pale, lying in the dirt, but but how many would you say got hurt? Oh, said my son, The boy and no more. For the crowd went away, and all was as before. Oh, no, my son, not all was the same. For think of the family that bore that boy's name. His father was hurt, and his mother was hurt, and his sister was hurt too. And all who loved him were heartsick and blue. Remember, my son, you're part of a home... And all of your joys and sorrows are not yours alone. So think straight and live straight. Be faithful and true if for no other reason than that somebody loves you. No man can live to himself and no man dies alone. And the tragedy of this man's life was not in the accumulation of his goods, but he died after sacrificing his family and his friends. One more word. Tragedy of this man's life is that he had nothing to survive the grave. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, That's what this text says. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I saw this cartoon one time of a guy sitting in bed, had his hands, arms folded, and a resolute look on his face. Somebody, the the family was standing, or obviously it was his deathbed. Somebody said to another standing by, if he can't take it with him, he said he wasn't going. But you are going, and you can't take it with you. And Jesus said that if you lay it up on earth, you've made a fortune and you've put it in a place where you can't keep it. Now Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to possess. But He wants us to have the best. And so He says, Make your fortune, but lay it up where you can keep it. Lay it up in heaven where it can be compounded for an eternity. I swear this happened. It sounds so incredible, you won't believe it, but it actually happened. I came down here yesterday to do a little work here at the church and I parked out here at my parking spot and got out and my, my, my clown friend who runs this uh, furniture store across the way came over and we were talking and kind of cutting up, Boots Fortenberry. And this wino, started coming. He, he's, he's a guy that wandered down the aisle one Sunday. He, 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 came, he was coming across the street down here, right there where that corner is. And, and we, could, you know, we looked and we saw him coming. And I said, you know who he is? He said, yeah, he told me his name. He stopped and he was checking out the fire hydrant there. He couldn't figure out what that fire hydrant was. He, 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 <laughs> he's already drunk. And he came down to where we were standing and he said, one of you guys give me a dime so I can buy a bottle of wine. He said, I want to die happy. I swear it's the truth. And we said, no, we won't give you a dime to buy a bottle of wine. We won't give you anything to buy a bottle of wine. And he reached in his pocket and he had some house shoes, kind of a plastic looking house shoes. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, these are worth $5. I'll sell them to you for 50 cents. And we said, no, we don't believe we need any house shoes. So he went on down and he he stopped down here at this uh, corner, this store here on the corner, this new uh, body shop deal there. uh, Well, this... uh, uh, upholstery shop, he talked to those guys a while, we were still standing there talking and he came back and he got about 10 yards from us and he stopped and he looked down on the ground on the sidewalk there and he walked over and I'm not going to tell you what I thought he was looking at but he walked over and he, and he put his thumb finger in his mouth, and he reached down, and he picked up a dime and he put that dime in his pocket and I was just watching him and he went you know, thank you, just like that and, and, he, and he came over to us, you know, and just like, uh, just like this, it was just, just this glowing joy and pride on his face. He said, you know, it's raining dimes. <laughs> and, and, and we said, well, you know, well, let us get under the, you know, under the shower, let's get under the cloud. He said, you know, it's raining dimes. And he started on down the street, just so feeling so proud. He is going to go die happy. Now I'm not here to, I'm not prepared to say to you this morning, hey, God dropped that dime out so he'd go buy a bottle of wine. I'm not prepared to do that. But I am prepared to say to you this morning that a bunch of us have reached up our hands and we've taken what God has given us and we've put it in our pockets, and we have wasted. Would you bow your head with me? Father, sad part about this story is that He reminds us so much of ourselves. And I feel so impressed, so convicted of that in my own heart. I've been so guilty taking the dimes, going away, consume them upon my own lust. I pray you'll move upon our heart today help us to see tragedies of wasted lives. And I pray that in this moment where the Spirit of God is, that we'll hear what He has to say to our heart now decision He'd have us to make we'd be responsive to Him while it is yet day for I pray this in the name of Christ and for His sake now look this way if you will there are three invitations that we offer these invitations are simultaneous first invitation we invite you to come this morning receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The greatest thing God has ever done for you is that He purchased in heaven a gift of eternal life. He offers eternal life that He offers to you as a gift. In these last few weeks there have been literally hundreds of people who have come down these aisles to find that gift of eternal life, that salvation in Jesus Christ. We want you to join that group today, that that special group. We want you to come and give your heart to Jesus and ask Him to come and live in your life. Bring newness and redemption and forgiveness. And if you will come this morning, and some of you will, many of you will, because we've been praying that you will, we want you to step right out on the first word. It's easier to come at the first the second invitation is for those of us who need to place our life in the church. If the Holy Spirit had known any other way for God's work to be done in the world, except through the church, He would have told us, and He didn't. Perhaps you're new with college in the college here, and you want to come and place your life in this church. It's important that you be in the church where you live. That speaks for the rest of us who are part of this congregation, not just college students. God leading you to join hands and hearts with a believing, evangelistic people who are committed to reaching out to the whole community. The third invitation is for you to come if you are living in the waste of life because God doesn't have your life and He's not in control, and you want to come to say, I want to give my life to Christ. Maybe like these young people who came Sunday. You feeling God leading you to give your life away. To somehow place your life on an altar and let God take you to a third world if necessary. To a pulpit in some church in, in, in Oklahoma. Wherever God leads you in committing your life to Christian vocation. Some of you that God has laid on my heart will come. Have not yet come. And I want you to do that today. Right at the first. We're going to... Heaven's going to rejoice and we're going to praise the Lord after we get through because He's going to have His way in your heart and life. That's our prayer. Let's do it while we stand, while the choir sings.